Oh, good morning. All right, am I on? Can everyone hear me fine? All right, fantastic, fantastic. So my message for you this morning, I've titled it, The Problem is Enmity, Not Ethnicity. The Problem is Enmity, Not Ethnicity. And my cornerstone text this morning is going to be taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. And I'm going to read from the New American Standard translation. Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it, that is, by the cross, having put to death the enmity. That was Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. Enmity. Enmity is a word that has all but disappeared from our contemporary lexicon. I mean, think about it for a moment. When was the last time you used the word enmity or heard someone else use that word in a conversation? Exactly. But you see, despite its rare usage today, enmity is a word that carries significant weight and importance, particularly when considered within the context of Scripture. By the way, speaking of context, I want to say at the outset of this message that I am rather dogmatic that when Christians engage in apologetics, that is, when we engage the culture in a defense of the truths of the gospel, it is critically important that we begin that defense by defining biblically the terms we use. Defining biblically the terms we use. For those of you who have been here at the conference the past couple days, you understand the importance of, of that. How Virgil and I both reiterated the point about how it's important to exegete the culture. Listen to the terms and the vernacular that they use so that you can take those terms and vernacular and then define them biblically. Now I say that because words have meaning. Words have meaning. And it is the meaning of words which, for better or worse, establishes the context for our apologetics. By not defining our terms biblically, we risk engaging the world using the world's terms on the world's turf. Consequently, we run the risk of ceding the moral, ethical, and theological high ground to an unbelieving culture, and we end up losing the argument altogether. As Christians, to not stand on a solid biblical foundation as it relates to biblically defining our terms opens the door to pluralism. Pluralism, by definition, is the idea that all beliefs are equally valid. As D.A. Carson declares in his book titled, The Gagging of God, subtitled, Christianity Confronts Pluralism, quote, an entire vision of reality is at stake. Now, let me pause there for a second. For those of you who were here the past couple of days for the conference, that's exactly why you were here. In fact, that's why you're here this morning. You're here this morning because an entire vision of reality is at stake. That's why you're here. Continuing to quote Dr. Carson, one thing is very clear. It is quite impossible to be a Christian in any responsible use of that term and to be a pluralist. 
the pluralist will explain the Christian and will doubtless conclude that the Christian is too tightly bound by tradition, naive in the area of epistemology, intolerant of other views, and so forth. Pluralists are inconsistent in that they want to be understood univocally, that is, they want to be understood as one voice, while insisting that the ancient authors, let alone God himself, cannot be understood that way. They may have many religious experiences, but none of them deals with the heart of the human problem, which is the sin that is so deeply a part of our nature. In short, we must deal with massively clashing worldviews, and part of our responsibility is to explain competing worldviews from our vantage point. Again, that is why you are here today. That is why you were at the conference the past couple of days. We cannot possibly engage, Dr. Carson says, we cannot possibly engage at that level unless we ourselves have thoroughly grasped the biblical storyline and its entailed theology. You heard both Virgil and me, again, reinforce over the past couple of days that if you're a Christian, you are a theologian. The only question is how bad or good a theologian are you? The only question is how bad or good an apologist are you? These worldviews are coming after you. Are you going to be prepared to respond? This is exactly what Dr. Carson is talking about. As, as apologists for the gospel, I said earlier, every true believer in Christ is an apologist. It is vital that we not embrace the language of the culture as we endeavor to engage the culture. I'm going to repeat that. It is critical that as a Christian apologist that you not adopt the language of the culture as you engage the culture. You must use biblical language as you engage the culture. Christians are to love each other. They're love, to love others, even your enemies, yes, but we are not to love them at the expense of the truth. That is not love. That is not love. We dilute the message of the gospel when we exchange biblical terms for the vernacular used by the world. As Dr. John MacArthur has said, quote, the health of the church and the impact of the church is always based on the church's ability to keep objective truth clear. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth, and the health of the church is always based on her ability to keep objective truth that is, biblical revelation clear, never to blur the line between truth and error. When theology is watered down, that line between truth and error is rubbed out, unquote. As calls for racial reconciliation and social justice increase both in fervency and in, in frequency, Christians must be willing to call a thing what the Word of God calls it. What the culture calls racism, the Bible simply calls hate. That's 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11, and 1 John 3, verse 15. To show ethnic prejudice or ethnic partiality, which are the more biblically accurate terms for what the culture calls racism, to show partiality toward another image bearer of God is sin, period. There's no need to complicate this. It's sin. It's hatred. That's James chapter 2, verse 9. Hatred of any kind is a matter of the heart. 
That is why enmity, not ethnicity, is the root cause of the societal disharmony we are witnessing in the world today. It's got nothing to do with this. It's got everything to do with this. The word enmity, by definition, denotes a very intense, fierce, intentional, and deep-seated spirit of animosity or hostility between parties that are in opposition to one another. The 18th century Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards elaborated on that reality when he said this, quote, Natural men are greater enemies to God than they are to any other being whatsoever. Natural men may be very great enemies to their fellow creatures, but not so great enemies as they are to God. There is no other being that so much stands in a sinner's way in those things that sinners chiefly set their hearts upon as God, unquote. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, the fact is that you, or I, you and I are congenital enemies of God. That means we are conceived as enemies of God. We're not just born as enemies of God. We're conceived in that state. Consequently, that also makes us congenital enemies of one another. Enmity, not ethnicity, is why there can be no horizontal reconciliation, that is, us to one another, man to man, horizontally, there can no, be no horizontal reconciliation apart from vertical reconciliation first. That's us being reconciled to God. But whether it's vertical or horizontal, it is faith in Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit in regenerating sinful human hearts that makes that reconciliation possible, not some man-centered or man-concocted method that will never work. Sadly, however... The church's understanding of the biblical doctrine of enmity is so languid that it is virtually absent from our preaching and our apologetics. But there was one individual, one individual on whom the doctrine of enmity was not lost. That individual's name was Jupiter Hammond. Jupiter Hammond, H-A-M-M-O-N, Jupiter Hammond. Jupiter Hammond was born a slave in October of the year 1711. Jupiter Hammond died a slave sometime around the year 1806. Literally every breath, every heartbeat, every blink of his eyes, every cough, every sneeze, and every hiccup that Jupiter Hammond experienced over the course of his 95 years on this earth was as a slave. On September 24, 1786, Jupiter Hammond gave a speech in New York City at the inaugural meeting of an organization called the African Society, the African Society. Hammond's speech was titled, An Address to the Negroes of the State of New York. An Address to the Negroes of the State of New York is also known as the Hammond Address. And among the remarks that Hammond made in that speech was this very sobering admonition, quote, now you may think that you are not enemies to God and that you do not hate him, but if your heart has not been changed and you have not become true Christians, you certainly are enemies to God and have been opposed to him ever since the day you were born, unquote. Now, I want to remind you at this point that Jupiter Hammond took every breath literally of his nearly 100 years of life in this sinful world as someone else's property. 
And yet, contrary to what is the common stereotype concerning slaves, Hammond was neither an unintelligent or, or uneducated man. Both of Jupiter Hammond's parents, his father was named Obadiah, his mother was named Rose. Both Obadiah and Rose were literate. They could read and write, which was very rare uh, for a slave. Jupiter Hammond's owners, their names were Henry and Rebecca Lloyd, both of whom were Anglican, educated Jupiter Hammond which, through what, what is called the Anglican Church, the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. So in the Anglican Church, that was their missional arm. That was their missionary arm. The Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts system. And it's through that missional arm within the Anglican Church that they educated Jupiter Hammond. Hammond would go on to later become the first black poet in the history of the United States to have his literary works published. Jupiter Hammond, though a slave for all of his life, was a Christian who was convinced of the sovereignty of God. In fact, so convinced was Hammond about the sovereignty of God and that God was in absolute control of everything that occurred in the world, he saw his own enslavement as God's divine providence in his life. As Hammond declared in the aforementioned address to the Negroes of the state of New York, quote, we live so little time in this world that it is no matter how wretched and miserable we are, if it prepares us for heaven. What is 40, 50, or 60 years when compared to eternity, unquote? This is a slave who said this. Though in bondage physically, Jupiter Hammond was a free man spiritually, perhaps freer even than some of you who are sitting here on the sound of my voice this morning. Jupiter Hammond understood fully that emancipation from his slavery to sin was of far greater concern and importance than being liberated from his physical shackles. It is my personal belief that Hammond's understanding of what Scripture teaches about enmity, about, about our being congenitally enemies of God, demonstrates that he was more orthodox in his theology than many formally trained theologians today who have earned seminary degrees. Hammond never went to seminary, yet he understood what it meant to be an enemy of God. He understood that. But you see, regardless of the level of theological acumen that Hammond may have possessed, I'm convinced that he would be criticized, if not altogether ostracized today, by many woke evangelical social justice advocates for holding to what they undoubtedly would describe as a hermeneutic of passivity, for having the temerity to believe that his subjugation to his white slave owners had been providentially ordained by God before the foundation of the world. If Hammond were alive today, he would absolutely be rejected by woke evangelicals. Dissed, you might say. So no, I have no doubt whatsoever that Jupiter Hammond would be denigrated and dismissed, especially by many black social justice advocates, advocates today for not beholding to what I like to call the gospel of perpetual grievance. That's why Hammond would be rejected, because he didn't complain about his circumstances. He trusted God, even in his slavery. 
the great educator and abolitionist of the 19th century, Booker T. Washington, who himself was a slave for many years before escaping to freedom, spoke about those kinds of people, spoke about those kinds of people who all they do is preach a gospel of perpetual grievance. Washington spoke about those people in his book titled My Larger Education, My Larger Education, in which he gave this very reve revealing account. Listen closely, please. I'm quoting Booker T. Washington here. He says, a story told me by a colored man in South Carolina will illustrate how people sometimes get into situations where they do not like to part with their grievances. In a certain community, there was a colored doctor of the old school who knew little about modern ideas of medicine, but who in some way had gained the confidence of the people and had made considerable money by his own peculiar methods of treatment. In this community, there was an old lady who happened to be pretty well provided with this world's goods and who thought that she had a cancer. For 20 years, she had enjoyed the luxury of having this old doctor treat her for that cancer. As the, as the old doctor became, thanks to the cancer and to other practice, pretty well to do, he decided to send one of his boys to a medical college. After graduating from the medical school, the young man returned home and his father took a vacation. During this time, the old lady who was afflicted with the cancer called in the young man who treated her. Within a few weeks, the cancer, or what was supposed to be the cancer, disappeared, and the old lady declared herself well. When the father of the boy returned and found the patient on her feet and perfectly well, he was outraged. He called the young man before him and said, my son, I find that you have cured that cancer case of mine. Now, son, let me tell you something. I educated you on that cancer. I put you through high school, through college, and finally through the medical school on that cancer. And now you, with your new ideas of practicing medicine, have come here and cured that cancer. Let me tell you, son, you have started all wrong. How do you expect to make a living practicing medicine in that way? You get the point. Washington went on to say, I'm afraid that there is a certain class of race problem solvers who don't want the patient to get well, because as long as the disease holds out, they have not only an easy means of making a living, but also an easy medium through which to make themselves prominent before the public. If the patient gets well, an entire industry of victimhood will get cancer and die. This will be the best thing for the black community. Until blacks throw off the shroud of victimhood, they will be at the mercy of doctors who treat a cancer that does not exist, but that they are paying for. Do you get the point? Washington is exactly right. In the culture today, we've got a bunch of doctors whirling around saying that the black community has a cancer that doesn't exist, but that they're paying for. You see, Washington's words are important to consider because you're hearing a lot today about America being systemically racist. But you see, but for something to be systemic, by definition, okay, so we talked about ex exegeting the culture, exegeting the language and vernacular of the culture. 
And you, you do that by breaking terms down and defining those terms individually. By definition, the word systemic means that something is literally everywhere and in everything. By definition. That's what the word systemic means. So if America were a systemically racist nation, Virgil Walker and I wouldn't be here today. Listen, the problem not only in America but in the world at large is not systemic racism but systemic sin. Now as I stand here today and looking out at you all today, I cannot say that anyone out here right now is a racist. That I can't say. But one thing I can say is that every last one of you is a sinner. That's systemic. See, sin is systemic. That I can say about every, every last one of us without knowing any of you. Sin is the most systemic reality on the face of the earth, and this is what Jupiter Hammond understood. He understood this. The problem isn't systemic racism, it's systemic sin. The British preacher and writer J.C. Ryle reminds us of the systemic nature of sin in his classic book titled Holiness, where he writes this, quote, sin is the universal disease of all mankind. Search the globe from east to west and from pole to Search every nation of every climate in the four quarters of the earth. Search every rank and class from the highest to the lowest. And under every circumstance and condition, the report will always be the same. The remotest islands in the Pacific Ocean, completely separate from Europe, Asia, Africa, and America, beyond the reach alike of Oriental luxury and Western arts and literature, islands inhabited by people ignorant of books, money, steam, and gunpowder, uncontaminated by the vices of modern civilization, these very islands have always been found when first discovered the abode of the vilest forms of lust, cruelty, deceit, and superstition. If the inhabitants have known nothing else, they have always known how to sin. Isn't it amazing, those of you who have children, I've seen many beautiful young children roaming around this weekend as first when I've been here. As beautiful as that young little child is, you don't need to teach that child how to sin. They come into this world knowing how to do that. Young ages, they know. One year old, they know. It's in them to disobey you. The sinful attitudes, biases, and prejudices that you and I harbor toward one another all have the same root cause and origin, and that root cause is the sin in the heart of the individual. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in Mark chapter 7. Starting at verse 18, And Jesus said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is, and is eliminated? And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man. For from within, right here, out of the heart of men proceeds the evil thoughts, 
fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. In here, not here. Here is the problem. I'm convinced that failure, the failure on the part of professing believers to embrace a proper biblical anthropology, which is to say a proper biblical understanding of the innately sinful condition of humanity, is precisely why many of us behave as if skin color is dynamic and not static. That kind of misplaced thinking is totally contrary to what the scriptures declare about the innate depravity of the human heart. You see, to view melanin, to view the color of your skin as dynamic and not static is to believe that skin color in and of itself possesses the inherent and autonomous capacity and ability to somehow cause a person to form sinful attitudes, prejudices, and biases about someone else. Such misplaced reasoning is why I wholeheartedly reject the term racial reconciliation. I totally reject that term. It's non sequitur when you think about it. I say that because, listen, races don't reconcile, hearts do. Virgil and I both do biblical counseling back in our respective churches. When I have two people in front of me, or even one, it really doesn't matter, I'm trying to address the issues of the heart. We got a heart problem here. I don't care what the other issue is. That's secondary. If I have a couple in front of me, a man and a wife, I'm trying to bring two hearts together around the Word of God. I'm not even necessarily trying to counsel a husband and a wife. The fact that they're married is secondary to me. If they're Christians, we've got a sin issue to deal with here. Listen, your melanin does not feel, it does not think, it does not love, it does not hate, it does not form intent nor does it or can it comprehend, discern, or distinguish between good and evil. That's what I mean when I say your skin color is static. It is not dynamic. Your skin color cannot do what the heart does. So this isn't the problem. This is the problem. Melanin does none of those things. Again, your melanin does not feel, it does not think. It cannot construct attitudes. But this can and does. Your skin color can't do any of those things. I mean, to argue otherwise is to deny what Jesus clearly stated in the passages I just read in Mark chapter 7. That the genesis of all disharmony and disunity that exists in the world, not only today but throughout human history, is a direct byproduct of the sin nature that indwells each and every one of us. Virgil and I just what, four days ago, just dropped a new episode of our Just Thinking podcast on indwelling sin in believers. It's a nearly three-hour episode trying to help you navigate biblically that reality that, yes, you are redeemed, you are regenerate, but there is remaining sin within you that you have to deal with not just every day, but every moment of every day. I encourage you to listen to that episode if you have not already, and if you have, listen to it again. 
as believers our collective failure to apply what is taught by Christ himself in Mark chapter 7 is what has given rise to a doctrine that I've termed sin by proxy. Sin by proxy. Sin by proxy is the unbiblical idea that this present generation of white people should be regarded as collectively guilty of historical sins allegedly perpetrated by their ancestors against my ancestors solely on the basis of their ethnicity and consequently that they must collectively repent of and make reparations for such presumed offenses. I talked about that this weekend. Sin by proxy declares that if you're sitting here now and you're white, you're guilty by virtue of existing. You're guilty by proxy of the sins of your ancestors presumed to have been committed against my ancestors. But you see, notwithstanding that Scripture clearly teaches that each of us individually will be held accountable for our sins, sin by proxy promotes the unbiblical idea that sin and its penalty can be vicariously, retroactively, and arbitrarily transferred from one person to another. That's unbiblical. You don't pay for my sins, I'm not going to pay for your sins. You're not going to pay for the sins of your ancestors. They're going to pay for their, their own sins, just like mine will. You see, but it's this idea of sin by proxy that has fed and fueled the propagation of such biblical, unbiblical philosophies as white guilt and white fragility, even within the church. The church is not immune to this. In fact, so much so is this the case that many white evangelical Christians have chosen to remain in the closet, so to speak, for fear of being labeled racist for saying anything that might even be remotely construed as going against the current social justice narrative, and that narrative is to portray all black people as oppressed and all white people as their oppressors. That's the current narrative right now, even within some churches. But you see, the prejudicial feelings and sentiments that you and I hold toward each other is a direct and tangible result of the enmity that resides in our heart towards God. And yet, despite that truth, the false gospel of racial reconciliation continues to be preached from the pulpits of many evangelical churches today. But you see, nowhere in Scripture is the term race used in the same context as it is consistently employed today by the culture. You heard me teach on that over this weekend. I gave you a one-verse apologetic against the idea of race. That verse was Acts 17.26. Acts 17, 26, and he that is God, created from one man, that one man is Adam, every nation to live on the face of the earth. And I told you that that noun, that word nation in the Greek is the word ethnos, from where we get the word ethnicity. So the proper biblical term is ethnicity. It is not race. There is no such thing as human races. You see, the culture today defines race primarily in terms of skin color. The culture makes no distinction whatsoever between race and the more biblically accurate term, ethnicity. So the culture will say, well, depending on how much melanin or how little melanin you have, you're either black or white. That's not race. 
Listen to what the late Dr. Robert Wall Sussman says in his book, The Myth of Race. The Myth of Race. For those of you who were here at the conference this weekend, you heard me quote this. So my apologies for citing it again, but I don't want to assume that everyone who is in here was here over the weekend for the conference. But Dr. Robert Walt Sussman writes in his book, The Myth of Race, what many people do not realize is that this racial structure is not based on reality. Anthropologists have shown for many years now that there is no biological reality to human race. There are no major complex behaviors that directly correlate with what might be considered human racial characteristics. There is no inherent relationship between intelligence, law-abidingness, or economic practices and race. Just as there is no relationship between nose size, height, blood group, or skin color, and any set of complex human behaviors. However, over the past 500 years, we have been taught by an informal, mutually reinforcing consortium of intellectuals, politicians, and statesmen, business and economic leaders, and their books, that human racial bio biology is real and that certain races are biologically better than others. The biologically deterministic racist worldview has been tested and disproven, disproven consistently, and yet its proponents have remained resistant to all scientific evidence for more than 500 years, unquote. So take the Bible out of it. Even when you take the Bible out of it, take theology out of it, science itself disproves the idea that there's such a thing as race. Another example, in April of 2018, National Geographic published a special issue titled The Race Issue. And in that special issue, there was an article titled, listen to this title, There is No Scientific Basis for Race, It is a Made-Up Label. This is National Geographic magazine from April 2018. And in that article was included a very important yet little-known fact about a man named Dr. Samuel Morton. Dr. Samuel Morton, that article read as follows, quoting, In the first half of the 19th century, one of America's most prominent scientists was a doctor named Samuel Morton. Morton lived in Philadelphia and he collected human skulls. He wasn't choosy about his suppliers. He accepted skulls scavenged from battlefields and snatched from catacombs. With each skull, Morton performed the same procedure. He stuffed it with pepper seeds. Later, he switched to lead shot, which he then decanted to ascertain the volume of the brain case. So in other words, what Morton would do as he collected these skulls from around the world, he would pour lead shot into them to see which skulls could hold the most lead shot. And on that basis, he determined this sort of racial hierarchy and which, of the, which of, among that hierarchy was the most intelligent based on how, many lead, how much lead shot the skull could, could hold. Morton believed that people could be divided into five races and that these represented separate acts of creation. So Morton had a theology. Morton believed that God created this sort of racial hierarchy, but again, his test was to take an empty skull and pour lead shot into it. He believed that these races had distinct characters, which corresponded to their place in a divinely determined hierarchy. Morton's craniometry showed that the white, that whites or Caucasians 
were the most intelligent of the races. East Asians, Morton used the term Mongolian, though ingenious and susceptible to cultivation, were one step down. Okay, so you got Caucasians, then you've got Mongolians in Morton's craniometry hierarchy. Next came Southeast Asians, followed by Native Americans. Blacks, or Ethiopians, were at the bottom. In the decades before the Civil War, Morton's ideas were quickly taken up by the defenders of slavery. Are you following me here? Do you understand where bad theology can take you? This is where bad theology takes you. It was bad theology that gave us the Holocaust. The Nazis believed the same thing that Morton believed. When Morton died in 1851, the Charleston Medical Journal in South Carolina praised him for, quote, giving to the Negro his true position as an inferior race, unquote. Today, Samuel Morton is known as the father of scientific racism scientific racism. To an uncomfortable degree, we still live with Morton's legacy. Racial distinctions continue to shape our politics, our neighborhoods, and our sense of self. This is the case, listen to this, I'm still quoting the National Geographic article. This is the case, even though what science, see I'm not even talking theology anymore, I'm just talking secular science. This is the case even though what science actually has to tell us about race is just the opposite of what Morton contended, unquote. So even science debunks the idea that there's such thing as human races. In a commencement address delivered at Western Reserve College in 1854 titled The Claims of the Negro Ethnologically Considered, the noted abolitionist, author, educator, and former slave Frederick Douglass denounced Dr. Samuel Morton's conclusions as, quote, scientific moonshine. So in other words, to put it more blunt, Douglass was saying to Samuel Morton, you're drunk. You've been drinking moonshine if you're going to come to these conclusions. And notice what Douglass titled his paper. Douglas didn't title his paper The Claims of the Negro Racially Considered. He titled his paper correctly The Claims of the Negro Ethnologically Considered. Again, because the word is ethnos, ethnic. For those of you who were here for the conference over the weekend, I asked you a question. Now, for those of you who, who heard the question, don't spoil it for everybody else. But I asked this question. I said, how many of you have ever been to a restaurant that specialized in racial cuisine? Nobody raised their hand, rightly. No. But you've probably been to a restaurant that specialized in what? Ethnic cuisine. Have you asked yourself why that is? Why don't they call it racial cuisine? You know why they don't? Because there's no such thing as race. People write cookbooks with ethnic recipes in them. They don't write cookbooks with racial recipes in them. Ethnic recipes. 
See, all this, all this to say, and I'm going to close here, all this to say that the idea of human races is a myth. I've demonstrated that both biblically and secularly, scientifically. Both swim lanes tell you that there is no such thing as race. Stop using that word. Race is a myth theologically, scientifically, and biologically. But for centuries, society, and sadly to a great extent, the church, has unquestioningly bought into that myth. The resulting damage has been well documented over the annals of both societal and ecclesiastical history, not only in America but around the world. But man-centered efforts to reconcile people of different ethnicities is nothing new. And yet, invariably, those efforts have proven futile in ameliorating what is the root cause of the enmity that exists between human beings, and that root cause is our sin. By definition, racial reconciliation is a volitional act. It's a volitional act. It's a voluntary act that occurs at the level of the human heart. Your skin color plays no role whatsoever. So this idea of racial reconciliation, that's a joke. It's a non sequitur. The term itself makes no sense. There is no explanation for the discord that we're seeing in society other than that the problem is spiritual. It is not sociological. The problem is spiritual. I said this weekend, there are only two attitudinal choices that I have in terms of how I relate to you. I either love you or I hate you. There is no ism. I either love you or I hate you. That's what Scripture teaches. Read the epistle of 1 John. I can have either one of those attitudes and that's it. However that attitude manifests itself, that's another story. But the culture's view of racial reconciliation fails to realize that our need for reconciliation is rooted in the enmity that exists between us and God. And society cannot hope to remedy with temporal solutions what is fundamentally a spiritual malady. It's spiritual. And the only solution to that is what Jesus himself preached, which is that you must be born again. Thank you all very much for coming this morning.